Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to an episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies where we always remind you to think deterrence. And of course, I am Adam Lowther, along with Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin. And we have a great topic for today's discussion. If you've been reading the news lately, you have probably heard that President Putin of the Russian Federation is planning to move nuclear weapons into Belarus. Uh, There was a conference in which he announced this with Alexander Lukashenko, Lukashenko with the president of Belarus. And so you'll have tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus that are Russian-controlled by this coming summer. So that's, that's quite big news. Now, let me turn it over to you, Curtis. I'll let you kick us off. What is your take on this latest development? Well, thanks, Adam. Welcome. And uh, and Jim, always good to see you. It's another wonderful day in the nuclear review world. Um, you know, uh, Belarus, probably Putin's closest ally in Eastern Europe. And... Um, uh, Lukashenko, I guess, is the president there. He's um, uh, very interested in having these kinds of weapons in his country, according to Putin. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure if, if he realizes that might make him a target. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, this is clearly uh, uh, Putin uh, trying to communicate to the rest of the world here. He is uh, his nuclear threats are, are I think, dulling. Uh, the senses out there, you can cry wolf for so many, you know, so many times. Uh, not that I'm encouraging him to continue to make nuclear coercive threats, but uh, he doesn't need any encouragement. But the point is, is that um, I think a, um, a desire uh, and a very public statement um, to move uh, tactical nuclear weapons uh, into Belarus is simply just a, a, a new version of an old uh, communication tactic of trying to influence the West and coerce the West into being afraid to support the Ukrainian conflict. And so um, I, I think uh, what we'll have to see is how does the West react or overreact? Um, and so I, I guess that will remain to be seen. Yeah, it's an interesting question, Jim, as you think about sort of, I mean, for you as a prior FA-52 and a prior... I'm actually still an FA-52, <laughs> just retired. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's uh, you know, once... What is an FA-52? Is that an aircraft? <laughs> <laughs> but but the technical aspect of this, of you know, it's it's not just a simple motion to move tactical nuclear weapons into a new country where you don't have, uh, you know, what we would call a weapons storage area or, 
a weapon, what we're going to soon call a weapons generation facility. Uh, but so what are some of the challenges? And this is for, for you as somebody who's worked in the, this specific aspect of it. What are the challenges for the Russians in moving nuclear weapons into Belarus? Well, thanks, Adam. Yeah. So in my typical way, because I never answer your question initially, is I first have to say it's always nice to have something to talk about. But I would look forward to a day where we come in and not have to talk about all this aggression going on by, you know, our adversaries uh, and, and, and saber rattling for nuclear weapons. You know, so, Jim, you know, those, days, those would be nice. W- wouldn't it be nice if we could have uh, on one of our episodes, uh, Mr. David Schwetty <clears throat> to come talk about his uh, very excellent uh, Christmas desserts. So that will be, you know, something that I would love to have. Uh, but until then, we've got to talk about nuclear weapons. Yeah, you just look at our past and see why we're where we are. But that's a whole other issue. And it's a great debate and a great discussion there, Adam. I uh, I tend to agree. So let's bring it on. Um, so, yeah, in the second piece that I'm in, in my way of not answering your question right away is to say, Belarus is in this position because they used to have some nuclear weapons and they gave them up. Okay. And you start to wonder now what position they're in to get them returned under the control of the, of of the Soviet union. There I go again, uh, under the Russian Federation. So, uh, so let me, let me start out Adam before I get to technical aspects say why announce now? Because the technical aspects of this, the first technical aspect, is you don't just decide today to move nuclear weapons to a secure location for the aircraft to be delivered and maintained and, and, and the weapons to be stored and secured in a place without some prior planning. So obviously, this plan has been in the works for a very long time. And so here we see... Uh, Vladimir Putin, again, using his nuclear weapons in a way to bring instability, but also to threaten in a way that was pre-planned. And that, I think, you can't get away with not seeing that piece first in the action of the announcement. Now, the second piece is moving the weapons around. Most The weapons can be moved, but securing them, make sure they don't fall into the wrong hands. Make sure they don't, they aren't uh, placed in a position where they're dropped or broken or in some, some way uh, um, have something happen to them that puts them in a condition in which they may or may not function as they're supposed to is a second problem. And that's why they have to have specialized facilities to put them in, to control them, to, to secure them, to maintain them, and to make sure that they aren't exposed to undesired environments, whatever they may be. And that all, again, goes back to showing you how much pre-planning has gone into this all-of-the-sudden announcement made just a few days ago. Yeah, it seems as though, because if you look at, if we were to actually take all of Vladimir Putin's threats and sort of put them on, you know, on, on graph paper and then start you know, ranking them in terms of the escalatory value of them. It seems as though he's very carefully, you know, 
moved up this sort of escalation threat ladder. And I don't know if you saw this, but there was an, there was some talk this week that, you know, Vladimir Putin has said that, Hey, if you continue to support the Ukraine and depending on what you give the Ukraine, I'll start testing again. Uh, so there, there is this clear, I think at least in the mind of Vladimir Putin, where he's, you know, ratcheting up the escalation so that there's, so he says, okay, I'm getting mad. I'm getting even madder. I'm, I'm, I'm really mad now. And I just wonder, are we understanding the signals that he's laying down to us? And do we, do we fundamentally understand as we, so as we graph out his threats and his escalation, do we, we, the, you know, the West, the Americans understand what those mean and where they stand in terms of sort of that escalatory value? Yeah, well, obviously Putin sees that escalatory value and he planned for it in this, in this instance, at least in, you know, Petrosky's view of this, but you know, it's, you know, he, he seems to be upsetting the international order and the way that things have been functioning. He's escalating it through that. It reminds me, you know, when, when you were a kid, maybe at least when I was a kid, you know, a bully comes in and says, you know, I'll take your, you know, give me your lunch money or I'll punch you in the nose. And, you know, if you hand him your lunch money, the next day he comes back and he says, thank you. You're such a nice guy for giving me the lunch money, right? That's the way the bully works. Well, hopefully everyone just gasped and said, Petrosky, you're an idiot, because that's not the way the bully works. When you give him the lunch money, the next day he comes in and he says, okay, now I want your lunch money again. And I also want your books and you need to, to do my term paper for me. And, you know, it just keeps escalating and escalating. You've got to have an answer for every step in that process. And I'm not saying, you know, you go ballistic. Sometimes you can't take on the bully. In this case here, I'm not going to, you know, even even venture whether, you know, it's worth going to the fight. But there are many other aspects of treaties and of sanctions and of other activities that we can show in response through parity, maybe uh, moving things ourselves, saying you just lost by adding people to NATO, et cetera. There are many other actions that we could take that would stop this escalation. And that, that we have to do to bring that fear. Otherwise, the bully comes back the next day and they're not going to be thanking us for yesterday's lunch money. They don't care. So they let, got it. let me push back on you and I'll push back. Maybe you can address this as well, Curtis. And that is this. So the bully analogy, I wonder how well that works here because the United States, I don't, we've not really responded in a way that would be desirous for Putin. So I don't know if he's gotten anything that he's wanted out of the United States. And I wonder if his, if he's escalating because we've not responded and it's, and in many respects, it's, Hey, uh, you know, Joe Biden, uh, do you not understand how Im this is, this is a vital interest to the Russian Federation and you are crossing the line of a vital interest and you're escalating this to the point where we will have to act in ways that we do not desire to act. And so I wonder if we are, 
you know, the deaf leading the blind and we're not listening to Vladimir Putin, you know, talk about what are, you know, somewhat maybe peripheral interest to us, but are vital interest because of Russian history and Russian natural Russian fears. I don't know. What do, what do you guys think? Well, let me add to this. Uh, uh, <clears throat> first of all, I, I, to your point, Adam, I think that uh, Putin is playing a different escalation ladder than perhaps some in the West are thinking about. Um, you know, we're all thinking about escalation to a detonation, but the re- but maybe what we're really looking at is this escalation in the background, right? So there's these. Well, you're you're still sending you're still sending uh, or supporting the war in, a, in an effort that's now prolonged this thing for so long. So now I'm going to escalate by withdrawing, uh, suspending the new star treaty. Exactly. Uh, and I'm going to even do that by a death of a thousand paper cuts, right? It was just, just after several weeks. Now I'm not going to report, you know, missile launches and, and, and exercises and so forth. And so there's the, and now I'm going to, I might start testing again. Uh, I'm going to move nuclear weapons into Belarus uh, and, and these other sorts of, I'm going to build an alliance, if you will, making air quotes with with China. Um, all of these things are bad news uh, to to idealists here in Washington D.C. Um, who who see this as counterintuitive to their agendas um, in, in the way that they want to shape the world. So uh, these are the challenges, and I think uh, to your point, we have to figure out new ways to counter those. Now. You know, Finland and Sweden joining NATO was a complete, you know, sort of off the, you know, sort of out of left field uh, reaction to the Ukrainian invasion. But now how about we look at Poland, for example, Poland has is spending four percent of its GDP now more than double the requirement for NATO members. The, and and in, uh, in fact, they're, they're one of their ambassadors, I think the ambassador to France just recently uh, may have overstated. Uh, there was some retraction going on, but basically kind of said, hey, you know, if Ukraine starts to falter, Poland may have to go and, and get involved. But this is how their asymmetrical threat, uh, or I should say their asymmet- the threat to their asymmetrical interest compared to ours. To, to, to NATO, this is in their backyard. This is super important to them. They're tired of hearing about China being the pacing threat. They've got a persistent threat right there in their backyards, and um, uh, and they're looking at reacting in certain ways. Now, that isn't to say that they can't do more. I think the last numbers I saw, the United States was providing ninety percent of the um, of the war support to the to to Ukraine, uh, and that those numbers ought to probably balance out a little bit more. But hey, maybe it's time that we put uh, we react to this. And the moment uh, Belar- uh, uh, nuclear weapons arrive in Belarus, maybe we ought to move them into Poland and see how uh, Putin likes that. Jim, yeah, uh, very interesting. Um, it's it's a little hard to, to to sort of digest all of this, and I think the reason why it's hard to digest is sort of what Curtis had said. That, you know, we're we're thinking strategy to to reduce all the threats. You have a different kind of threat coming from Putin than you do from China. Completely different. You have to have different tactics and different plans. But the end result, whether and and, and Curtis, I appreciate you taking the bone on this. Uh, on uh, you know, I, I sort of threw it out there and saying, 
hey, what about you know, th- this bully threat? You know, what are we doing for it? But the reality is we have to have multiple ways of doing this. And they have to be somewhat, in my opinion, pre-planned and in, 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 in place so that we can look at the options that are on the table. And you're starting to see sort of a lag behind each of these steps. I'm, I'm going to take a guess here that those weapons were going to go to Belarus regardless of Ukraine, regardless of what U.S. has done. It's just an opportunity to say it now to get the reaction or the non-reaction that's, that's wanted by Russia. That's, that's the way I see it. Adam? Yeah, I mean, so I, I would submit that Putin has been developing a range of options in the because he thought that he would win the war in Ukraine in short order they would replace you know they would re- topple the government replace zelensky with a government that was friendly to moscow that was not going to look west that did not turn out the way they expected and because it hasn't turned out the way they expected they've had to you know sort of um develop alternatives to their going in option and going in plan. And so therefore we've seen this range of actions from threats to suspension to now, you know, Alexander Lukashenko is, you know, he's dependent upon Russia for his survival because I tell you this in many ways, the war in Russia, I think is, similar to the war in Georgia in 2008 when, you know, the, there was this, you know, what was it? South Ossetia. And I forget the other part that, you know, there was, they wanted their own independence and the, you know, Georgia was looking to join NATO and join the EU and, you know, Vladimir Putin couldn't have a country on his, border that like that, that was another NATO member. So it was less about Georgia and, you know, I, he, Vladimir Putin hated Saakashvili, the president of, of Georgia, but it was really, it wasn't about Saakashvili and the Georgians. It was about the Americans. And I think the war in Ukraine was less about the Ukrainians and was more about the Americans. This was a war against the United States because he's repeatedly told the United States, you can't, you know, press my border with NATO member states and then put, you know, phased array radar in countries. And then, and then you demand, you know, you demand further arm, you know, further strategic arms reductions while you're building missile defenses that can knock down my, you know, my ballistic missiles and, and the Americans just thinking from a a Russian perspective, the Americans have in many respects been deaf to Russian concerns. And, you know, cause it goes back to this very famous where James Baker uh, told, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, that we will not move an inch further, you know, than the unification of, of Germany. And then, you know, they're on Russia's borders. So it's, and, you know, this was sort of Vladimir Putin's last stand was, you know, he, he, you know, Georgia wasn't even really a European country and, and he invaded it to stop 
it from becoming a NATO member. And then it's like, well, wait a second. What are you guys, what are you, the Americans, what are you not getting? I invaded Georgia to stop you from making them a NATO member. We created, we've created conflicts that would make it impossible, you know, to, because you have territorial, uh, challenges so therefore that they can't join nato we we did that in you know we took crimea we've created the conflict in the donbass and we've done all these to make sure these don't become nato members and you still keep pushing when are you going to listen to our concerns and so i just wonder and i know i'm taking too much time but i just wonder how much it's going to take for us to really consider Russian concerns. And that's not to say I think Vladimir Putin's a good guy and I want to be his buddy or anything of that sort. But Russia is, you know, it, it's a particular in the nuclear realm. It's a great power, which is what they wanted to want to be treated like. I don't know. I just, I, I, I wonder when we hear them. So um, I would, let me say this. Um, uh, and I take your point, uh, perfectly Adam in that this goes back to the asymmetry of interests, right? Uh, this is their backyard. It's not our backyard. Um, and so they're going to care about this stuff more. It means more to them. When we look at this conflict with, with Ukraine, um, uh, we see, um, still, um, a, a large American, support contingent for the, for the, uh, for supporting Ukraine. Uh, I think, uh, but, but what we don't see is that ultimate support. We still don't see them, the, you know, we, the, the movement of fighter jets. Um, we've certainly haven't, uh, uh, made the threat that we would employ American troops. Uh, so to some degree, Putin's nuclear posturing has deterred, uh, uh, you know, NATO, uh, the highest portions of the NATO support possibilities. That makes any sure. sense. And so what I'm, so, so to some degree that is he has, he has succeeded there. Um, and so I think the, uh, the, the reinforcement of, of Lukashenko and, and um, uh, uh, Belarus uh, and bringing them into this n- nuclear game uh, is, is just another step in this in this effort of trying to show the West that this area is important to them. This hemisphere is there near abroad is what is the most important thing to them. And 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 as you said, Putin has been saying this forever. You, you've not listened to me. Now you you will hear me now. And. Um, and so here we go. And, and the last thing I'll add to this is that just recently, uh, Medvedev, you know, who was the president at the time when we negotiated New Star Treaty, his, his signature that's on that treaty, has re- very recently said that any move uh, by the Ukraine or anyone else to take to read to try to retake Crimea will fall under the Russian de- uh, nuclear doctrine and view that as a as a direct attack on Russia. Uh, intimating that this would would likely respond uh, or or draw the response of a nuclear uh, c- capacity. So we have to be careful uh, as we see this continue to draw out into the summer. 
Yeah, thanks, Curtis. I want to I want to make a slight change uh, to the direction we've gone because I had one other point I was going to make earlier that uh, we sort of got off on track on when we talked about the technology, and that was how to control the nuclear weapons if they go into Belarus. And I sort of tie it together by saying, you know, the weapons were taken out of Belarus by the Russian Federation early on. Everyone thought that was a good idea to consolidate their weapons back under the Federation. But there's a concern if these ta- the tactical weapons, especially those that can be deployed fairly quickly, fall into the wrong hands. And this creates a real destabilizing opportunity in the area for just about anyone um, if those weapons get out of control. And I'm not what I haven't seen or heard um, is that Russia plans to place them there, has a place to place them. Are, who's going to have control? Is it going to be Belarus? Is it going to be Russia? Is Russia going to move substantial military forces in the area that can be on a, a hair trigger or a military trigger to do that? That changes the dynamic of this war in Russia. And that's the technical issue that I've run into when I started thinking about this, aside from that timeline. Curtis, you're going to respond. So, yeah, I would say that what, what I've read out here is that Putin has insisted that Russia will maintain control of the weapons. Uh, but I do take your point that when you move it out uh, of the custody of the border, uh, you know, you do, in, you know, incur some additional risk. I, moving it closer to to NATO doesn't make these weapons more secure or more usable. I mean, they're already close and now they're even closer for, as I said, to be targeted by by NATO uh, capabilities. So I'm not sure what that is. One thing that's interesting though, is that he said it, that by July 1st, the storage facilities will be ready. Now I'm not sure how you're going to be able to do that with all of the OSHA requirements, EPA requirements, impact yeah. statements. Yeah. Uh, the labor, what about issues. the anti-nuke uh, groups? How is he going to do that in Belarus? It's a, I'd the anti-nuke groups too. It would take America yeah, it would take America years to do this. That's well, that and that was my point. You, so, so you're tongue in cheek, and I and I agree with you. It takes it, you know, all those things get in the way. But even if you take all those things away and build a facility sufficient to provide the security necessary, even with a security force around them in that region, you're right. They're no more dangerous, but they are more vulnerable to illicit use to accidental use, to theft, all of those things change when they come out of their normal facility, unless they, again, have been planning this for years and have a strong, secure facility. That's part of what the U.S. does. But, Jim, I would submit that's part of the threat. This is what is the ambiguity of the threat from Putin, right, is don't make me do all of this because... There's all this other risk that I want to infer upon it. And that's why we have until July uh, 1st before I'm really going to probably move these weapons. So there's some time for you, for you Americans and NATO members to sort of rethink your support for Ukraine. So I don't have to do this. But it can also be, you know, if you think about it, it's also Putin poking us in the chest saying, you know, you hypocrites, you have American weapons in different countries in Europe. How dare you tell me that there's something wrong with me having Russian weapons in on the, you know, the territory of my allies, because that's exactly what you do. And 
he has some validity. You know, it's a, it's a valid point. So I would flip that around, Adam, and say for decades, uh, Russia and, and Putin have protested the fact that we have weapons in other states, and now he's just done that. So is he not the hypocrite? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I was talking to Kerry Karchner, one of our senior fellows at NIDS. We were talking earlier today, and he mentioned something that I had never thought about. And that is the idea that the the weapons, you know, what we would consider tactical nuclear weapons in Europe, the B-61s that would be delivered by fighter aircraft, we see them as tactical for the Russians, those are strategic weapons because they can target Russian sovereign territory. Whereas the tactical weapons they have in Europe, the two to 6,000 can't strike the United States. So it's a very asymmetric threat. And so therefore for the Russians, any future arms negotiations are, they're going to want to take French English and what we call tactical nuclear weapons into account and create, you know, bunch them all together as, you know, the Western strategic arsenal. And then they'll say, well, hey, listen, our tactical nuclear weapons can't reach the United States. So therefore, they're not part of the deal. And I had never thought of it that way. And since I had never thought of it that way, I'm sure, you know, I'm not probably alone in that and sort of having that, huh, I hadn't thought of that. And then I wonder if we're missing, you know, if we're missing some of these sort of what might be kind of, geez, why didn't I think of that moments? You know, what other aspects of the way Vladimir Putin is thinking and trying to signal us might we also be missing because we're sort of focused on our perspective? Well, I would say uh, you're right. And I think I have that moment every day. Why did I think of that? Or why didn't I think of that first? Um, I, I, I think um, it's an interesting perspective. Um, but then I would argue, argue whether or not the French and the Brits would then, would then you know, correctly fall under that. And uh, uh, so uh, I would say that 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 is an interesting perspective, and I, you know, uh, in the final months of the Trump presidency, there was, uh, and Ambassador Billingsley has talked about this, uh, that there was a great effort to to replace New Start with a new treaty that would have encompassed every warhead, you know, sort of limiting both countries to just say three thousand instead of fifteen hundred and fifty, but you could use them in, I guess, in different, you know, different bins of maybe you want more tactical or more strategic. <clears throat> uh, now we'll never know if that's possible, at least not in the near future. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we, we, we could have been well on our way to a, a, a better treaty to account for these tactical uh, nuclear weapons. And instead we remain today with uh, this class of weapons that are, are non non treaty uh accountable. Uh, I, don't say, I don't want to say compliant. They're, they're just account. Uh, thank you. That's not treaty accountable. Uh, there's sort of freebies out there. And, uh, and, and so there you go. And again, uh, we'll reiterate one last time and, and Jim can add to this. Um, and I, I've noticed out there that, um, that, uh, he's, um, 
there was some note on the Twitterverse uh, from the uh, uh, nuclear disarmament community that there have been a lot of articles recently on sort of espousing low low yield weapon <laughs> use in in Europe. Uh, I, we at NIDS would like to take credit for some of that, uh, and and so very, we're very happy to read that today. Uh, but I would argue that um, the Russians see these low yield weapons as just bigger bombs. They don't see them of the same kind of strategic effect that we might. And I would argue if uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, his point that he made in 2017, that any use of a, of a tactical nuclear weapon will have a strategic effect, if that was true, then we would have incorporated it into a strategic treaty, and we didn't. So I don't believe that we really believe that. Jim, we're out of time, so I'm going to give you the last word. Oh. Thank you. Yeah, regarding the regarding this uh, idea that a nuclear weapon is just another big bomb, uh, you know these tactical nuclear weapons. The one thing that is clear is people are wrapping their hands around this idea that tactical nuclear weapons may be used on the battlefield. That's why a lot of articles came out. We've we produced a, an article addressing this because of the effects. But I still go back and say, once you let that genie out of the bottle, who never been here before, um, now what? And it's time for us to think of that strategy and how we keep it from occurring in the best way we can. And that's uh, and and so Curtis, you hit it, uh, hit the nail on the head, so to speak, in that we need to build that into our policy, into our strategy, and make sure it becomes part of our deterrence strategy. Um, so we don't have to cross that bridge. So that's my final word, Adam. Well, it is the end of another wonderful nuclear view. Uh, so I want to thank Jim and Curtis for joining us again to talk about president Lukashenko's latest mistake. Of course, he's only the president <laughs> of Belarus because he cheated in the twenty. 20 elections and drove his opponent into exile. And uh, I'm sure he's, he's glad he's got Vladimir Putin's back. He probably owes him because Vladimir Putin knows how to stuff a ballot box. So uh, thanks to you, the listeners for joining us on this episode. And as always, we look forward to having you on the next episode. And if you want to send us any of your questions to go to the NIDS website, and there's an email address there that you can send us questions and we will address them as we have in the past. And I want to encourage you, as always, think deterrence. <laughs>